morning. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, that everyone is able to be here this morning. Pray that you be uh, with Tim and Christy uh, th- this morning, that you would uh, bless their talks and their, your spirit would be with them and speak to the people that they are speaking to. Uh, we thank you so much for your love, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, your spirit would be with me this morning as I don't have my notes, and I pray that you would... Uh, Help us all uh, to be blessed by this subject and that we could see a clear picture of you and your love. We thank you so much for your blessings and thank you for this Sabbath day. In your name we pray, amen. This week's lesson is the prodigal's new clothes. And uh, we'll start off with the memory text. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, we're going to see as this, as we read this story that there's going to be a contrast of the two brothers and, um, their views on their father. Um, we'll start off, I'm going to read the, uh, opening story here, um, on the, on Sabbath's lesson here. Um, it says, Somerset... Magum wrote a short story called Rain about a missionary in the South Seas who converted a prostitute to the gospel. He poured himself, heart and soul, into seeking to win her, though at times his methods seemed harsh and unforgiving. In fact, he insisted that she return to the United States from which she was fleeing in order to finish a jail sentence, all despite desperate pleas to spare her from the torture, degradation, and ignominy that awaited her in prison. During her jail time, the missionary insisted, was just part of the process of repentance that she needed to go through, and thus she had to return. Um, The story ended, however, unexpectedly. The missionary killed himself. His mangled corpse found washed up on the beach. What happened? Apparently, spending all this time with the prostitute, he fell into sin with her. Unable to forgive himself, he killed himself instead. What those characters needed was what we all need as sinners, uh, uh, a personal experience of grace and assurance that Jesus revealed in the parable of the prodigal son. First of all, any reactions to this bizarre story? (laughs) My first take was kind of, his view seems rather legal, um, that, you know, I don't know, it almost seems as if, if, to be fair, she needs to go ahead and complete her sentence, um, that somehow that would be the just thing. Um, and, you know, I immediately thought of uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, uh, because, you know, it's a situation with a prostitute, and I don't recall him telling her to go to jail for 30 days before he would have help convert her or whatever, you know, and uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't let them throw a couple stones to teach her a lesson or after they ran off, threw a couple himself, you know. So um, I, I I just thought it was interesting, his, his take on things there. Um, then also, um, in the middle section there where it talks about that he committed suicide because apparently... Uh, he did covet her. Um, it almost it seems to imply that they were on unequal ground morally, that perhaps um, he was the holy missionary and that she's the unholy prostitute and that he's helping bring her up into a higher moral state, but in, rather than him bringing her up, uh, you know what I mean, uh, she brings him down, um, and I, does it really work that way? I mean, are we on different levels morally? So, yes? The thing that strikes me so much in this story is that no matter inter- any interaction, if we put self first and our selfish interest, so instead of putting Christ first and Christ's forgiveness for her and Christ's sacrifice for her, so that Christ wanted to redeem her to her whole self, 
and be centered in God and be able to find all that unselfish love that she was seeking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. That any time that we put self-interest first and that covetousness that came out, um, that it totally uh, takes us off the right track. Uh, yep. That we cannot stay focused and tuned to the eternal prize and the true worth of each individual without everything being in the focused um, presence of where you're going to, of Christ and his sacrifice and his love and, and keeping your eye on the prize. Yeah. I might wonder why he had an ulterior motive to get her back to the United States. One yeah. of the reasons why you would pay off that debt is if you wanted to live conscience-free in that culture. Um, so there might have been the ulterior motive way back when he asked for her to do that. Right. Um, and kind of to go with what you were saying, rather than, it seems like, I mean, of course we're really reading into this because it's a very general overview of the story, but but it seems as if to some degree, rather than meeting her where she was at, he took his idea of justice and repentance and all these different things and said, you need to do this for, you know, and and made her do what he thought was right rather than what maybe she thought was right or maybe what using the influence of the Holy Spirit to do what God thinks is right. <laughs> so I think based on the summary, it's fairly clear that he didn't have a um, he didn't have a very adequate concept of the grace of God. Yeah. Uh, in that, you know, when he stumbled and fell, he thought that he could not approach God as a forgiving God, and he he felt that he had to terminate his own life. Right. Um, so and. You, know, you can read all read all of them between the lines about he may have felt superior to her in the first place, and then uh, been struck with his hypocrisy and uh, right. the list is endless. Yeah, uh, it seems clear that he has to believe to some degree in some form of penance and works, right? Because he had to. He believed she had to earn her way back into God's grace, and then when he fell, he felt the same way, and it was too much. He didn't think he could overcome it. Yeah, so any more thoughts on this one before we move on? Okay. Um, let's move over to Sunday's lesson. Um, actually, check that. Before we start into this, let's uh, go to uh, Luke 15 and actually read the, uh, the parable real quick. I'm reading out of the net translation. Uh, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had, left on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and worked on one of the on one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many fathers hired workers have food enough to spare? But here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began began to celebrate. Now this older son was in the field. As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, Your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him. But he answered, His father, look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you 
and I never disobeyed your commands. You never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's go ahead and read the top here on Sunday's lesson. Uh, In this parable, the two sons born to the same father represent two character traits. The older son apparently demonstrated loyalty, perseverance, and industry. The younger one was no doubt unwilling to work, unwilling to be accountable, and unwilling to take his share of responsibility. Both were the same, were from the same heritage. Both probably received identical love and commitment from the same father. One son was, it seemed, faithful. One was disrespectful. What caused the difference? Thoughts? All right, yeah, that's fair. If you do the right thing, but you goof off and you get rewarded and I don't, that's not fair. Same in the other parable where somebody worked all day long, you got the same wages as the guy hired an hour before got, that's not fair. And God's trying to show what fairness really is. You know, salvation for anyone who will accept it. Yeah. Russell? Well, I mean, how many parents have had two children? (laughs) You come from the same... Same two parents, and they're raised roughly the same, and they're they're completely divergent in their choices and in their lifestyles and in their attitudes and personalities. I mean, that easily a, could be a genetic component to the differences. Yeah. Yes, I think that I always think of that. I have three children. Two are active in the church. One is not. And uh, I think... I was encouraged when Dr. Maxwell said years ago that God had all these angels and one-third of his children went astray. Excellent. What did he do wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always felt that the two sons weren't that much different. The younger one just had the guts to do what he, <laughs> what he wanted. Absolutely. That was definitely going to be one of my points. Um, you know... apparently the elder son is only in this for the business side of things. He's not enjoying his relationship with his father. This is a business transaction that he's looking to profit from in the end. And he'd really rather be out there where the younger son is. Uh, It's pretty funny because the younger son is the one who he finds out would rather be at home because he enjoys his father's presence. But the elder son is in misery, and anyways, I just found that pretty interesting. But uh, yes? I read something very interesting this week, the way it was worded. It said, uh, it kind of describing not this particular parable, but in general, principle behind it, that it's possible to, possible to be of the world without being in the world. And uh, because being the world is is a set of principles, and you can not actually be partaking of all these so-called uh, you know, evil things, but you can still have the same principle reigning in your heart. Also, I think the, if you notice the way it was written, the, son, the older son said, your son did this. Mm-hmm. When the father replied, he said, your brother did this. Right. And, you know... <laughs> It's a Cain and Abel thing, you know, it's, it's your fault. No, you know, he's trying mm-hmm. to point back, this is not just an ordinary person. This person is your brother. Right. You need to have compassion on your brother. Right. You know, and not just, but we, he tries to distance himself and say, it's your son that did this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, y'all are so much better than me because I totally relate to that older brother. <laughs> I think that older brother knew his younger brother. I think he knew that he scammed his father before. And I think that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying this is the biblical principle. Right. I think we can't relate to that older brother, then I'm in a different... Absolutely. You are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'll get to some of that later. Um, I thought to myself that, you know, really this is sort of like the whole mystery of sin thing. You know, I mean, like, like was brought up a third of the angels fell. What did God do wrong? I mean... uh, 
we, you can't explain why someone can know the truth and yet still choose to go away from it. You can't, you can't explain that. But at the same time, and even though appearances perhaps were that he was going away from the truth, maybe he wasn't. You know, I mean, we don't know what exactly what was going on in his heart because he's the one who seemed to be happy to be back, and the elder was like, "I want out of here." <laughs> so, um, uh, let's see here. I, now, I know that this parable is is supposed to uh, be a parallel of of God and His relationship to His children, um, but you know, do you think the father treated them unequally, or is it simply? A, distort, a distorted perception of the elder son. I have three children, and each one has a different personality. Yes. And um, you don't always treat each one exactly the same. That's right. Because of, you just have to deal with each one differently. Right. So. But with each relationship, doesn't it come down to that relationship? And that's the, the, the individual... Um, Heart's response and the individual's expectations, and where you're talking about the the <coughs> older son uh, being physically present, being um, dutifully there, and and fulfilling the duties that he's he's all to be his, and then having also to pick up the work of the younger son that headed off to you know party, um, and feeling as if he was doing the right thing, being being there, uh, body, mind, and soul. And then feeling uh, very uh, displaced, even though he had been there and been faithful. I can't help wondering if, where he says, you didn't even give me a goat. Um, if part of the story isn't also seek the relationship. And whenever you have in your heart that, uh, that you have hopes and dreams and you'd like to do something, why not talk to your father about mm -hmm. it? And be able to have an, a relationship that is more than just being physically present and doing your yeah. duty, but is truly a relationship. Yeah, it seems like um, that there's a lot of untalked about issues between yeah. the father and the elder son, because apparently the son's been stewing on this for years, you know, however long the elder, younger son was gone, and then it just boils over when he returns, rather than reasoning it out with his father uh, and coming to terms with it on his own on his own. You know, um, I had my 80th birthday, and I Congratulations. went through the tornado, and yeah. uh, I uh, th started thinking more seriously about what to do in the future if something serious should happen, which it almost did. And I thought about um, our children, and I said, I think I should sit down with them ahead of time and tell them how we're going to divide what little we have. And one daughter says she thinks that's unwise, but I've never known, even my own eight brothers and sisters that loved each other, I've hardly ever known a, a, an estate to be divided and not some hard feelings come in. Yeah. And two brothers wouldn't speak to each other for three years, just before one of them died. <coughs> and I think that this two brothers and their estate and who's going to get what and who deserves what is uh, part of Satan's work. Yeah. He, he would try everything he can. He's very deceitful. And so at least that brings that out to me too. That, uh, And in spite of all I do, there may be some hard feelings, but I'm planning to sit down with them and tell them, you know, what we're going to do right. and pray that they will glorify God. One son is not in the church, but um, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you're in the Adventist church right. or not. Selfishness follows you there, too. Right. You think that's why there may be so lack of compassion in church members for non-Christians for their plight? Because we don't see them as God does? We see them as, oh, well, they made the bad choice. Too bad for them. Maybe one day they'll turn around and come this way. The, the older brother didn't go out looking for the son, right. his brother. But God was trying to show, you know, have my view of people. Right. Not your view, but my view of people. 
Right. And in the Old Testament, it says, rescue the perishing, those staggering towards death. Mm. If we looked at everybody as staggering towards death, mm. and they would be our brother and sister, how much more intensely would we put effort <laughs> into sure. trying to s rescue them sure. from staggering towards death? I'm going back to the theory that she said about the older brother. I know throughout my life, I've had a difficult time sometimes understanding when you try to make right choices in life and follow what you know to be right, train up a child in the way he should go when he's older and all these kind of things, and you've done all you can, and your children aren't following the path you think they should be following. Then you have other friends or family that you know that never went to church, never had worship with their kids, and their kids are in the church today. <laughs> you know, and it's very difficult as a parent to understand that, but I've finally learned it's a matter of choice, just like God. It's a choice that person has to make. God presents to us salvation. We have to accept it. We have that choice. And our children have that choice. But that's not easy as parents to accept. Yeah, absolutely. There's also a wonderful element, though, that's uh, coming more and more real in our lives is the wonderful power of intercessory prayer. That, that nobody, absolutely nobody, knows the heart of that individual. And that if you try to have conversations that may be difficult and that wall goes up, that God is the only one who can truly reach the heart and that he's the one who can speak and the Holy Spirit can be there so that still being that that loving presence, uh, attempting to be as non-judgmental as possible um, and still truly putting it all in the Father's hands and praying for his intercession, uh, that in focused... Um, putting it all in the Father's hands, that that is the only time whenever shifts have, have occurred that we've been able to see hmm. in some difficult circumstances. So um, knowing that God is still wonderfully almighty, even though he respects the choices of the individual, he can speak to the heart as only, as only he can. Our, you know, every other parable that we read, we seem to have no problem saying, well, this is just a parable. It's not a... Uh, a, a list of uh, child guidance principles. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm gathering that we're all looking at this as somehow being, well, this is what I need to do when my child goes out and blows the family fortune. They need to come back in and we need to have a big party for them and give them you know, everything back. And I think that we need to remember that this father was God and that he didn't have, let's say, a guilty conscience over that he got really got the kid mad or that he did something wrong before the kid stomped out and, and um, that now the, fa the father's like, okay, good, I'm so glad you're back because my guilty conscience is assuaged and so now I'm almost paying you off just to keep you around. I mean, this is a perfect picture here and I don't, I think we need to remember this is not, I mean, imagine if this child came back and truly was scamming his father <laughs> and so on, which is probably more human, more likely that this kid could still use some character development to cement his decision. One of my thoughts was, uh, again, looking at it from the elder son's view, because it, really I think it's kind of written from the elder son's point of view to some degree, I think. I, I feel that way as I read it. Um, the elder son's perception is, is that there was not equal treatment going on here. Um, here this elder son has worked hard, you know, the other one was irresponsible, one gets reward, one doesn't. Um, but even though it is the elder son's perception, is it the elder son's responsibility to make his father act more fairly? Or does the father need to win back his son even though he has not done anything wrong? I mean, because if we are going to make the parallel that, that the father is God, then he hasn't done anything wrong. So, is it the responsibility on the elder son to correct his wrong view, or is it God's responsibility to come and meet him and to and to try to win him back? Because that's the that's the position we're all we're all really in is that we believe the lies that Satan has told about God, and God has to come and ch and change our perception because it's a wrong perception. We've not been treated unfairly. We're caught in a war, and and God has to come in and and win us back to the truth and say, no, I'm not really like that. I'm actually like this. And I think we see the very beginning of that process at the end of the parable where he says, you know, you, you've, you've been with me, you're, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. So it's kind of starting the conversation. Of, right. You've been blinded to some things, perhaps, right. that you thought were the way you had to interact with me that weren't the case. Yeah, and he's really 
trying to let him in on is that the real treasure here is not my fortune. The real treasure is that you're my son and we have the privilege of living together in, in harmony and, and learning to love one another and, and know one another. And it reminds me of the idea of you, you have not because you ask not. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. It's a very good point. The father came out to meet both sons. Yeah. When they they didn't ever neither one of them made it into the house without the father. <laughs> that's going out that's right. He came to both of them. Very good point. Let's move on to to Monday. At the top there, uh, picture the father as he watched his emboldened son put things together in his backpack, ready to leave home. Maybe he asked the son where he was going, what his plan was for employment, what his dreams were for his future. Who knows what answers the son gave. They probably weren't encouraging, at least to the father. The son, meanwhile, was more than likely ready for the good times ahead. After all, why not? He was young, adventurous, had some cash to spend, and a world to see. Life on the family farm probably seemed dull and boring in contrast to all the possibilities that the world presented to him. Um, what kind of repentance do we see here? Does it seem like true repentance that he's sorry for what he did? or that he is sorry only for the consequences of what he did. So we kind of touched on that a little bit. It's possible that... And and the lesson seems to side with the fact that he is running a scam, that he he isn't really sorry. He just... He's up a creek now because he's got nothing, so he's rolling the dice and coming back home. Um, But what's what's everyone's take on on the story? Do, Do we side more with the fact that that he really is sorry or that he's got caught, so to speak? Or does it matter? I, the way I read it a little bit, it seems like that he does feel caught. I mean, he's hungry. He wants some good food, like a nice place to sleep. But it's when he interacts with the Father that he really realizes repentance happens there. That interaction with the Father changes his mind, I think, even further than where he was. Initially, it started out, yeah, I, I would like some better life, maybe. Russell? Well, in his mind, when he's in the pigsty, he, 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 he realizes that, uh, he reasons through the, the, the understanding that he has of the character of his father, and he says, his servants are treated better than this, I'll go back and ask to be a servant. He's willing to relinquish his, his standing as a son and just come back and be treated as a servant because he understands his servants are being treated better uh, than he was dealing with on his own. So I, I think the, the repentance process had begun. Uh, how far along he was on that, who knows? Yeah. Um, how much of this do you think is that oftentimes it's only in this severe hardship that we turn our eyes to the Father? Yeah. That whenever life is good and you're living on the family farm, that you can't see the blessing that's there for you and grow the character, that it's only whenever you get in a pigsty that you realize what you had and what your father is. Yeah. In, in Luke 14, it follows up with that. Uh, it starts in verse 25. It's called the cost of discipleship in my Bible. And it goes along with this theme. There was, a, there was planning thought to these parables. There, there's an organization here. Christ is putting forth a message that this is what it costs to be a disciple. There is organization planning. This child did not. The older child did not either. He was just going along with the father. Neither one of them had really thought out their life beyond. And I, and I think that's part of the role of a parent, to help you guide your children into this thinking process. And it's exactly what Christ was doing with these series of parables. Yes, I thought the significant word in that paragraph is consequences. And I was re-listening to some of Graham Maxwell's old tapes while I was driving this week, and he emphasized that again. And this week I also discovered that someone I'd rented an apartment to weren't getting married. They're graduating from Southern, but they're going to put that off a year or something. And so um, I had to asked them a few questions. I said, um, but I told my wife, as I discussed it later, I said, I think I didn't make clear that God gave us the commandment thou shalt not commit adultery for a good reason, even though half the young people do today. 
before marriage, but that it weakens the marriage bond between the husband and the wife and it, the sacredness of it. And so God didn't just say that because he didn't, well, if it isn't hurting anybody, it's okay. And you're both consenting. No, he knew. And that's a way of, uh, with all of God's commandments, they're not harsh. They're out of love. We need them. We need them. It, it, it's going along with that. It's more of a, yes, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to our relationship with God. If you have uh, a marriage, it's not the paper that's important, but it's the, it's just like baptism. It's the public act of the commitment. Here we are, we're staying together. I think uh, I saw some statistics that um, marriages are lasting longer. More marriages are lasting over 10 years. Well, that's great. It's not the 10-year marriages, it's the 50-year marriages that are great. It's the same thing with us. Our commitments to God is not a, of what, five years or 10 years. It's a lifetime commitment to change this discipleship. But I have to admit, when I first retired, I operated a mobile home park. And I said, I don't think, I, my manager, I don't think I want to take in unmarried people. It's against my principles. And she said, you're going to be half full. <laughs> right. And, and I thought that through and so forth. And I've seen so many who I did let in the park, who when the fellow got tired of the young lady, he was gone. And the young lady could not continue ranting and so forth. And uh, why a person would live intimately with someone and not willing to have me, a minister, perform a simple wedding ceremony, well, and bind him together for better or for worse until death do us part. Why are there as half as many divorces among Adventists as there are anybody else? Right. Right. Well, let's uh, let's move down to uh, later. Where am I? At? Uh, May I add something back to your yeah. original while you're looking? The original thing I think of is the son, whoever, whatever his motives were, hunger, whatever. The one thing that is true, regardless of his motives, is that he knew where to go, and he trusted that his father, under some situation or another, would accept him, and he went to his father. Right. And he headed in the right direction. He may have had poor motives, but at least he knew where to go. Right. And that's a, that's an excellent point. And that was, was something I was going to say is that, um, maybe in the end, it doesn't really matter whether he's trying to scam his father or whether it's truly repentance because at least he's put himself in position that he can get back, you know, right with his father and, you know, he knows that his father has unconditional love for him. Right. Of what he does. Exactly. Another taken point to me on this one was that it wasn't that the father wished upon the son the hardships of life that he encountered, that it was the son that chose the path that took him to the hardships, that on this consequences component, very often the hardships that we have in life, I don't think, are God's choosing. That's not the path that he would have wanted right, for us. Right. But that we create a lot of our own hardships by the choices that we make. And then we try to blame him for why did you put me yeah. in the stew pot when in reality we were the one that left the relationship and we were the one that left the path that he had for us. Right. And so, we used his gifts to do it. <laughs> you know, right. we use our intelligence, our Yeah, health, our absolutely. Health, and we use whatever he gives us to do whatever we want. Good point. Okay, moving down to the middle part on Monday's lesson, um, I just found kind of a little small hypocritical statement in there and I, and I wanted to show some data to show why exactly. Um, it says, uh, it, it's hard to know this, uh, how this story might have turned out had things gone well for the prodigal. Suppose he found ways to keep money flowing in and to keep good times coming. It's not like, at least from what we see here, that he wouldn't have been coming back on his knees, is it? Um, among, who among us at times hasn't been really sorry? Not so much for our sins, but for the consequences of them, especially when we get caught. Even the hardest pagan is going to be sorry he committed adultery if in the process he picked up herpes, gonorrhea, or other sexually transmitted disease. There's nothing Christian about sorrow and pain that comes from our wrong choices, is there? Okay, so my little thing was, is why did they have to call 
a person who has a sexual struggle a pagan when the data shows that that Christians struggle with sexual sin just as much as somebody who's not even in the church. So here's some a few statistics to to show what what I was talking about. This is actually more on pornography, but still, it, I thought this this was a pretty interesting little study they did because there's a few comments at the end that you'll see that are pretty interesting. Uh, it, it breaks it down into demographics, states, polit- political tie, and and religion. Um, the biggest consumer of pornography, Utah, averaged 5.47 adult subscriptions per thousand homes. Montana was the least, 1.92. Um, and then it says number 10 on the list, West Virginia. Uh, where is it? Okay, eight of the top 10 pornography consuming states gave their electoral votes to John McCain. I'm not trying to say anything, I'm just pointing out the fact. Uh, and, 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 and Florida and Hawaii were exceptions, while six out of the lowest ten favored Barack Obama. Again, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, churchgoers bought less online porn on Sundays. A 1% increase in postal codes religious attendance was also associated with a 0.1% drop in subscriptions on that day. However, expenditures on other days brought, uh, of the week brought them in line with the rest of the country. <laughs> Residents of 27 states that pass laws beginning gay marriages boasted an 11% more porn subscribers than states that don't explicitly restrict gay marriage. Uh, and then it says, to get a better handle on the association between social attitudes and pornography consumption, Edelman melded his data with a previous study on public attitudes toward religion. States where a majority of residents agreed with the statement, I have old-fashioned values about family and marriage, bought 3.6 more prescriptions per thousand people than states where a majority disagreed. Here's the kicker. This is the one I like. A similar result emerged for those who agreed with this statement. Quote, AIDS might be God's punishment for immoral sexual behavior, unquote. <laughs> I can't believe anybody would even agree with that, but it doesn't seem too surprising that they, they would be hypocritical. Anyways. Okay, I just thought that was interesting. I thought I'd throw it in there real quick. Are you saying that was in the Sabbath school lesson? What you just read? No, it absolutely wasn't. <laughs> okay, so, all right, moving on um, to teachers' comments out of the teacher's version of the lesson. I found an interesting statement here. It says, and it's paralleling here um, God's relationship to his children and, and the father and his sons. Um, it says the loss here is actually a mutual loss. God has lost a child. John 3.16 tells us that the father loves his children so much that the loss of his children is unbearable. And so Jesus was sent to die in our stead. Um, so that brought the question in my mind, if this is a mutual loss, why did God the father need to send his son Jesus? Did he send his son to die so that we would be allowed back into his house? Is there a barrier preventing God from accepting us back home? Because in the story, there's not a barrier, except for the son who left, who didn't want to be a part of the house. But when he came back, he was given a robe. Right. That's what this Sabbath school lesson was about. Not willing that any should perish. Right. But all come to repentance. Right. So I, I found that statement, you know, interesting to say that Jesus came to die in our stead when there's a, a mutual loss because if if it's truly a, a mutual loss, then there wouldn't seem to need to be anything to be able to unlock the door, so to speak, from God's point of view. Rather, he needs to unlock our door, which is keeping him out, if that makes sense. So anyways... Um, I just thought that was an interesting statement made by the lesson. Um, moving on to Tuesday, um, we'll cover, let's cover the two other parables here. Um, there's three parables that are in Luke 15, all dealing with, with lost and found. Um, let's start at Luke 15.1. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? 
and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Um, And then moving on to the lost coin, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins, loses one. Uh, Doesn't she light light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Um, So, what we have here is we got three types of sinners that these that the parables sort of break down. I was just thinking about how the, the first two, and, and as was mentioned before, these, this is planned well. <laughs> this set of three, because the first two are speaking to things that people in that context would readily agree are things of value. Right. Livestock was something of value. Certainly, a coin is something. Of value, and if you, it comes down to the fact that when we abuse people in any way, we have lost sight of their value. And the Pharisees had lost sight of the value of these people that they labeled sinners and the tax collectors who were hated um, of their inherent value. And this is one way he's setting them up to see that, perhaps, if they're open to it. Um, yeah, in, in, the, in the three parables, of course, of the lost lamb parable, the person doesn't know where to find the way, but they know they're lost. In this parable, the shepherd, Jesus, comes and finds the lost lamb and carries it to safety. And then in the lost coin, uh, in this parable, the person doesn't even know they're lost, but Jesus comes and retrieves them. And then in the third, the prodigal son, the person knows the truth but leaves it for their own desires and is later convicted by their utter failure that they are lost. And then, but in this version, it seems like they definitely know where to turn, the son know where to go uh, for help, and Jesus runs to meet them. Um, why do you think it is that, first of all, like, I kind of have a like, tough time understanding the lost coin one a little bit just because... If if the parallel is that they don't even know they're lost, like where does where does like the free will decision come into it and all that? But maybe it's just that he he snatches them and gives them the opportunity to see the truth. I don't know. But anyways, uh, what what are y'all's observations or opinions on how God deals differently with each type of sinner? Is this perhaps kind of a little bit of a parallel of what happens in the prodigal son itself? is that the father deals with both the sons in two totally different ways because ultimately he knows what's best for them. God meets us where we are. Yes. That's a principle. And the Solomon Islands or wherever, God met them where they were. And Romans says that some of them wouldn't know about God. They knew the God of nature, but they would be there. And so I think, you know, my father and others... That God met him where he was, and I don't know that. I didn't think he was very religious. He was upset when I became an Adventist, and so on. But God will save everyone who is safe to save. Right. Uh, I I think that it just like you kind of alluded to it, that the lost lamb parable very well could be kind of a parallel to to those who are in other religions besides Christianity or, or non-religious people uh, because they know, they know they've got problems and they know they need help. They just might not know that Jesus, by name, is that answer. They just follow the Holy Spirit and they do what is right because they follow the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that the three parables are more focusing on the one that's doing the searching as a representation of God the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that's the focus of the parable, not not the subjects being sought after, although they're representative of things. So, the person searching for the lost coin, well, the coin is valuable because it is a coin, but it's the it's the action of the one searching, going after what is valuable, and then asking everybody to rejoice because it's been found. Right. 
It wasn't that the individual, the one searching, it wasn't that they were less thankful for those that were still there. They weren't less thankful that they still had nine coins in their purse. Um, it was that the lost one was retrieved. And so um, for the older son who was feeling so displaced, it wasn't that the father was any less grateful or loved him any less. Uh, he still had such a place in his heart. Um, but it was that rejoicing for the one. Okay, uh, moving on to Wednesday real quick. Um, Wednesday's lesson. Uh, let's see, is that at the top? Yes. As we saw, the son had to make decisions to return. There was no compulsion on his father's part. God forces no one to be obedient. If he didn't force Satan to be obedient in heaven or Adam and Eve to be obedient in Eden, why do it now? Long after consequences of disobedience have wreaked havoc on humanity. And then down at the bottom of the page in the pink there, it says, what's fascinating here too is that there is no I told you so from the Father. There wasn't any need for it, was there? Sin weeps its own own wages. And of course, my immediate thought is, you know, um, some of the views we take on the destruction of the wicked in the end, how is it that, that that a lot of people are comfortable with saying if the consequences have naturally you know, work themselves out for thousands of years, uh, and sin weeps its own uh, re- weeps reaps its own wages. I'm wascally wabbit. Uh, then, then why will God suddenly intervene and impose punishment on them in the end when it's been happening naturally all, all along the way? Why is it that everything can be a natural consequence of sin, and re- and s- sin re- reaps its own wages until it comes to the very end, and then eternal death has to be imposed? It can't just be a natural outworking of what's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, that was my immediate thought of it. Um, well, in a way, it is, is a natural consequence of God's unveiling His glory. He, has, he could not communicate with man unless He came in the form of man. But when God unveils His glory, the glory of God who is love will destroy all those we're out of harmony with it. So he doesn't impose. He simply re- puts things back they were, the way they were before Satan and all this came into the world. Right. And I think the impor- important clarification there is that the, the death part doesn't originate within God. Right. It originates within us. We have chosen to take the poisonous pill and, and continued to all along. Two groups see the same thing at the end. Yeah. Both see both to both groups God is a consuming fire. Right. But one group has can live in that consuming fire because of the righteousness they have accepted from God. Right. And the other sees it as punishment because they can't live in Right. That. Which actually seems to parallel nicely with the two with the two sons in the prodigal son parable because same father and it and and if the son comes back truly repentant and truly sees his father's love, then you've got this nice, not nice, but um, you know, contrasting view of their father. But it's the same father with the same love. Um, I'm going to close uh, here with a selection out of uh, Christ Object Lessons. I'm going to kind of read some selected sections out of the uh, Lost and Found chapter on pages 207 through 211. I feel that kind of wraps up everything nicely, what we've been talking about. Um, This elder brother uh, has not been sharing in his father's anxiety and watching for the one that was lost. He shares not, therefore, in the father's joy at the wanderer's return. The favor shown the prodigal he regards as an insult to himself. He dwells upon his own life in his father's house as a round of unrequited service and then places in mean contrast the favor shown to the son just returned. He makes it plain that his own service has been that of a servant rather than a son. When he should have, been, when he should have found an abiding joy in his father's presence, his mind has rested upon the profit to accrue from his circumspect life. His words show that it is for this he has foregone the pleasures of sin. Now, if this brother is to share in the father's gifts, 
the elder son counts that he himself has been wronged. He grudges his brother the favor shown him. He plainly shows that he had that had he been in his in the father's place, he would not have received the prodigal. He does not even acknowledge him as his brother, but coldly speaks to him as quote unquote thy son. Yet the father deals tenderly with him. Son, he says, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Through all these years of, the, of your brother's outcast life, have you not had the privilege of companionship with me? By the elder son were, by the elder son were represented the unrepenting Jews of Christ's day, and also the Pharisees in every age, who look with contempt upon those whom they regard as publicans and sinners. They were working not from love, but from hope of reward. In their eyes, God was an exacting taskmaster. Self-righteousness not only leads men to represent God, not only leads men to misrepresent God, but makes them cold-hearted and critical toward their brethren. When you see yourself as sinners saved only by the love of your Heavenly Father, you will have tender pity for others who are suffering in sin. You will no longer meet misery and repentance with jealousy and censure. When the ice of selfishness is melted from your hearts, you will be in sympathy with God and will share his joy in the saving of the lost. He that is forgiven much, the same loves much. For he that loveth not knoweth God, for God is love. Anyways, that is it. Let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts, that you would humble us before you, that we might see our fellow man as you see them, that we might see ourselves as sinners saved only by your love, and that we might have the compassion and the sympathy uh, toward those who are part of this dying world and have not woken up to see the truth of your love. We pray that we can shine your li- your, the truth of, of your character of love to them and that others might come to know you through us. We thank you for everyone who is here in this room, and we pray that your spirit will be with them as we go forward to this week. Uh, be with those who are hurting from this tornado uh, devastation, and uh, as there are opportunities to help, we pray that you will help us help them. We thank you so much for your love and mercy, and we pray that you be with all the loved ones and friends uh, of the people of this room. We thank you for these things, and we pray that you continue to be with Tim and Christy and provide them with safety and help them to have great success and and their ministry efforts over in Germany. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.